Luke chapter 10 is our text for today. Our focus will be in verses 21 through 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. All right, if you have found your way there, we want to hear God's word this morning as the Lord inspired these verses to Luke. Luke 10, beginning in verse 21, Luke writes, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask now for insight and understanding of them, that you may transform us by your grace and that you would receive all glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you read the scriptures, you will find many different places that show expressions of joy. Many examples. I mean, we could go Old Testament, New Testament. Just in the Gospel of Luke alone, we've seen examples of people rejoicing, where Mary rejoiced in her song. John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb with joy. The angels announced the news, the good news, that they were announcing to Mary and Joseph and the rest, and they referred to it as good news of a great joy. And there are countless other examples in the scriptures where we find demonstrations, manifestations of people rejoicing. We know there are other times as well where people are instructed to rejoice. Jesus in the uh, Beatitudes back in Luke chapter 6 verse 22 said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And he says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So their fathers, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So whether we see expressions of joy or instructions to rejoice, we know that the Bible is filled with joy and people walking in joy. But what about Jesus himself? Does he ever rejoice? Does he have cause to rejoice? When you come to our passage today, we find just that. We find Jesus not commanding others to rejoice, not others rejoicing, but we find Jesus rejoicing. We're told in the Holy Spirit, praying and giving thanks to his Father. Last week we saw from verses 17 through 20, the 72 that had been sent out on mission, they return and they give report. They're rejoicing, we're told. 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And we know that, that Jesus responds to them and he, he gives them a bit of correction, doesn't he? He's not saying that they should be disheartened or that they should be discouraged about what they've just seen. 
he wants to affirm them in ministry, but he, he wants to give them a course correction of sorts and says in verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, the fact that the demons had been cast out in Jesus' name by them. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So we continue out of this theme of rejoicing, of this theme of joy, and now Jesus rejoices in the very same thing, basically, that he encouraged them to rejoice in. Here in Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, we are blessed with this special glimpse into the joy of Jesus. As far as we know, maybe there's one, one other one in, in addition to this one, but this is likely the only account in the entire Gospels where the joy of Jesus is on record. Now we assume that he expressed joy many times, that we have outward manifestations of joy in Jesus' life that are not recorded. I'm sure that there were plenty of those, but here in the Gospels, this is the only time we have on record an account of Jesus externally expressing joy. As we look into the joy of Jesus this morning, my prayer is that we would all be encouraged, encouraged in a couple of ways. As we consider the joy of Jesus, my prayer is that we would be, that, that our joy, that we, as his followers, that our joy would be informed by the same realities that compel Jesus to rejoice. And certainly that our joy would increase. So as we consider this passage today, I want us to consider the joy of Jesus and here I want us to see three realities of his joy. Three realities of the joy of Jesus that should speak to us, that should inform our own joy, but should cause us to rejoice in him all the more. Three realities today behind the joy of Jesus. The very first thing that we see in this text is that Jesus' joy, that joy of Jesus is a joy fueled by the Holy Spirit. Before we get into his prayer, notice what verse 21 says, in that same hour, so we know that this is a, the context here is coming right out of the previous verses where he's encouraging the disciples to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. In that same hour, notice the text says, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. As we see this continued theme of joy continue into these verses here, we see Jesus outwardly rejoicing to his Father in prayer. But it's important that we see the source of his joy. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. As Jesus expresses his joy, notice here in the text, notice here that, that joy is a triune activity, that it is an activity that is experienced by the Godhead. Jesus is praying, rejoicing. He's rejoicing in prayer. How? In the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source, the originator of his joy. And notice the object. He's rejoicing to his Father. Right here, you have 
the Trinity rejoicing together in the redemptive work and plan of God. We know throughout Luke, the Holy Spirit is often portrayed as inspiring many different kinds of things. The Holy Spirit inspires prayer, inspires speech. And here in this case, he is inspiring joy. He's the originator, the cause of Jesus' joy here. I think that this is a, we don't want to run past this because it's such an important reminder to us, an important statement about the nature of God. Here we see the Trinity taking joy in the work of redemption. Again, the Spirit igniting the joy, the Son expressing it, and the Father receiving it. Even in verse 21 where it says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or for so it pleased you, we could say. Even the Father is rejoicing in these truths. The role of the Holy Spirit is an important role on many levels. We know the the work he does. We know based upon other passages of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is present in the lives of believers to do many things. He convicts us. He illuminates us. Our understanding, he comforts us. He leads us, he helps us, he intercedes for us, he seals us, he does so many things. And and here we see that he is the igniter of joy. And brothers and sisters, this should speak volumes to us because we're going to see the content of his joy in just a moment. We're going to see why he's rejoicing. And it has to do, and and if I was to summarize it, it has to do with with the redemption, the the, the redemption of sinners, the, the, the truth and the glories of God's salvation coming to pass. It speaks volumes to us because if Jesus saw fit by the Spirit to rejoice in his Father's plan, that that was the thing that compelled him by the Spirit to rejoice, should that not inform our joy in some way? how our joy comes about and what our joy is rooted in. Brothers and sisters, whenever we contemplate our own salvation or see others encounter the beauty of the gospel, we ought to resonate with joy. It's an activity of the Holy Spirit. Number two, not only is his joy fueled by the Spirit, It's a joy rooted in revelation. It's a joy rooted in revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but God's revelation. His revealing of his plan and of his will. You see that in verses 22 and 20, or excuse me, 21 and 22. The primary focus here of Jesus' thanksgiving to his Father is that he has chosen to reveal certain things. In essence, we see Jesus rejoicing in in how the Father has revealed his plan, how he works, who he is. A couple of things about this revelation. Notice, first of all, the recipients of it. The recipients of it. Notice as Jesus prays, he prays thanking the Father. First of all, he acknowledges the scope of his sovereignty. Notice he prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's acknowledging the authority and the, the, the supremacy and the sovereignty of his Father, of, and he's, he's recognizing that, and he's going to base what he says next upon that fact. 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You are over all things. And this is what's going to compel him to to say what he says next. He then goes on to thank the Father for his sovereign work in salvation. Specifically, two things are stated in verse 21. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. One, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and two, that you've revealed them to little children. So he's rejoicing. Remember, this is joy. He's expressing joy in the sovereignty of God. He's rejoicing now in this this revelation of his sovereign will. Two things, he says, that God has hidden these things. These things we could, in short, say referring to all of the plans to bring about redemption for God's people. That God has hidden these things pertaining to salvation from the wise and understanding and that he has revealed these things pertaining to salvation to little children. Now, when you see that and when you hear that, it might be initially startling to you. Again, we're talking about Jesus expressing outwardly joy, and the very first thing he says is that, Lord, I rejoice that you've hidden the truths of salvation from some and you've revealed it to others. And you may think, whoa, wait a minute. That would not be the first thing I would have thought of if if I was going to say, what would Jesus rejoice in? Why is he rejoicing over the fact that God hides his saving truth from some and reveals it to others? First of all, we need to realize this is not the only place we've seen this kind of language. If you go back to a text that's familiar to many of us, we stop a little short, but when we quote this passage, in Isaiah chapter 6, remember when Isaiah was there in the throne room and he saw all that he said and In verse 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. We usually stop right there and we talk about the glory of missions and and to seek the advance of the gospel to reach the ends of the earth, as we should. But notice what he goes on to say. The Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The ministry of Isaiah would largely be a ministry of judgment. Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 15 Jesus quotes from this same text in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, regarding the use of his parables. And he says, quoting Isaiah 6, this is why I speak in parables, so that the truth is hidden from some and it's revealed to others. What we have here is an example of God's sovereignty specifically his sovereignty and salvation. In some ways, it's a mystery to us as to how all of this works. 
But we do, from the text, get a bit more help of understanding why Jesus is rejoicing in this. Notice he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have, one, hidden these things from who? The wise and understanding, and revealed them to who? Little children. There seems to be a contrast between those who are the wise and understanding, which we know Scripture uses to refer to those who are wise in their own eyes, the pri- the, the, those who are filled with pride. Versus those who are little children. Little children is often a term used to refer to the helpless and the hopeless, the, the humble. We well, go to other passages, certainly we see that spelled out more clearly in James chapter 4, verse 6, where we're told God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When Jesus says, I rejoice in the fact that you have hidden the truth of the gospel from the wise and the understanding. He is referring to the fact that God has hidden truths to those who are wise in their own eyes. These are people who by no means are innocent bystanders. And yet revealed them to little children, the humble, and the weak, the helpless. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, commenting on this text says, God remains the one who reveals and conceals. Yet we must not think that God's concealing and revealing are symmetrical activities arbitrarily exercised towards neutral human beings who are both innocent and helpless. God is dealing with a race of sinners whom he owes nothing. Thus to conceal these things is not an act of injustice, but a judgment. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded that if the Lord chooses to hide these things from some, he is hiding these things from sinners, not those who are innocent. The wise and understanding is is almost a sarcastic way here of referring to those who are wise in their own eyes and see no place for God or their need of salvation. They see no need for Jesus. Friend, let that be a warning to you if you were here or maybe you're watching and listening. Let this be a warning to those of you who may hear that and are indifferent concerning Jesus. You may think, I don't, I'm not against Jesus, but I'm just not that interested. I don't really see a need for him. Or, yeah, I guess he's important. 
Friends, let this be a warning to your indifference. Let this be a a call to you who are indifferent concerning Jesus, a call to you who may be wise and understanding. That he may very well leave you in that state. Especially if that is what you so desire. But to the little children, the humble, those who are helpless, he does reveal himself. It's important here, friends, that we see that the contrast is not between those who have knowledge and those who are ignorant. Jesus is not condemning knowledge here. Not at all. Nor is he affirming ignorance. But rather it is a contrast between those who think they are fine, just just fine without God, versus those who know they aren't. Here Jesus is rejoicing over the fact, according to God's gracious will, that he reveals the gospel to some, and he hides it from others. Now there's a lot more that we would need to unpack regarding the doctrine of God's sovereign election. But one thing that can't be avoidable is to say that it's not in the Bible. And I know that some people get all up in arms when you begin to talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation, the fact that God makes choices, that he reveals to some and that he hides to others, that he, that he calls some and that he passes over others, and, and that causes things in our minds and our hearts to get all up in arms and say, that, well, that's not fair, that, that can't be. But listen, it ought to speak volumes to us, brothers and sisters, that the only recorded expression of joy coming from Jesus in the Gospels is when he is rejoicing over God's sovereign grace. And if this is something that is energizing his joy by the Spirit, it ought to speak volumes to us to say that the doctrine of election is of vast importance to God, and it ought to be to us. This text reminds us that the most significant problem in the world is spiritual blindness. You you see that here, right? You've hidden, you've revealed. The implication here, and certainly all in verse 22 as well, we see it, and we'll talk about verse 22 in a moment. The implication here is that for someone to be saved, revelation must take place which implies a a blindness, a hardness of heart, an inability to see the things that need to be seen. We do not and cannot naturally see these things pertaining to salvation. We are blinded by sin. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds The eyes, excuse me, the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth. Friends, if any of us are going to see the truth and the beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will be and it must be due to an act of divine grace. Where God opens your eyes and he reveals these things to you. So friend, if you can see these things, 
if you have seen your sinfulness for what it is before a holy and righteous God, if you have seen the truth of God and his holiness and the truth of your sinfulness and rebellion against him, if you have seen your need to trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, if you have seen these things, then rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the God of your salvation because you did not come up with that on your own. God revealed these things to you. He opened your eyes and showed you these wonderful truths and promises from the scriptures. And he gave you the eyes to see. Rejoice in him. Take joy in that truth. Rejoice that you can see and make sure that God remains the object of your joy. This is one of the most humbling truths you'll ever come to realize, that while you and I deserved nothing from the Lord, he graciously has given it to us. It's overwhelming and humbling. When you, this doctrine may be difficult to get our mind wrapped around, but it is a humbling and an overwhelming truth. It's overwhelming. See the revelation, but, but you see the recipients of this revelation But you also see the object. Look at verse 22. Jesus continues on. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In verse 22, Jesus continues in his joy-filled prayer and acknowledges something very important about himself. He makes this unique claim that no other one could make. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father no one knows the Son except who, it, who the Son is except the Father, and vice versa. No one who knows the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He is acknowledging his unique and intimate relationship with the Father. Here you have the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, now in human flesh. Acknowledging the intimate relationship that he has with the Father. And as he acknowledges this relationship, he acknowledges the authority that he has been given, that he, in fact, has everything needed to accomplish the Father's will as it's been stated. He has all things. All that a sinner needs in order to be reconciled to God is found in Christ. He is superior to all others. He is the only one who perfectly knows the Father. And he's the only one that can reveal the Father to you. This truth that is being revealed here is the truth regarding the true identity of who Jesus is. Listen, this is why Jesus matters to everyone in this room, to everyone watching this live stream, to everyone in the world. This is Luke's version, we could say, of John 14, 6. John says, Jesus says there, no one comes to me, uh, comes to the Father except by me. 
This is Luke's version of that same truth. No one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Son chooses to reveal him. Friends, this is a reminder to us as why we must look to Jesus Christ alone as our only hope of salvation, our only source of confidence and redemption. This is why we must cling to Christ by faith, because he is the one, he is the only one who has everything needed, who has all that you need at his disposal. So friend, if you're here today and you're hearing this, and you're hearing this and, and maybe you understand yourself to be a sinner. You wouldn't claim to be a Christian, but you would understand, oh, I, I am a sinner and I understand that God is true and that he is righteous and he has every right to condemn me in my sin. If you're hearing that and you're now seeing that Jesus is the way for that problem to be resolved, then could it be, could it be that God in his grace at this moment is revealing to you these things and is calling you and drawing you to himself Friend, do not, do not use the doctrine of an election as a reason to run from Christ, but use it as reason to run to him. Because if he's revealing these things to you, then run in faith and embrace him as your only hope because he is. Church, this is why the mission we spoke of last week is so essential. It's no accident that these verses follow the mission of the 72 and their return. It's no accident that these verses are here. Jesus is urging his disciples. He is encouraging his disciples here with these deep and glorious truths around redemption to spur them on to further faithfulness, to give them this sense of joyful confidence in the sovereignty of God so that they will continue to go forth and proclaim the message, the only message, that can save. Friends, this is why we must be clear in our message to proclaim Christ, to plead with others to trust in him alone, praying and knowing that God is in the business of revealing these things. This is why we pray for more laborers to go and to make this news known. This is why we must pray as we pray for our lost friends and relatives and neighbors and coworkers, as we pray that we're praying for God to open blind eyes. I don't know that anyone that I'm aware of that has ever prayed, Lord, help them in their own strength, apart from your help and grace, help them in their own wisdom and knowledge to come to the truth. We've never prayed that. We prayed, Lord, save them. Open their eyes. Bring them to yourself. Do you, you see, even as we pray, we're affirming the sovereignty of God. Do your work, oh God. There's true joy found in the revelation of God. The fact that he has given grace to sinners and that Christ is our only hope. Number three, it's a joy spread through blessing. See, in verses 23 and 24, after Jesus prays, he then turns to his disciples privately and says to them, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is affirming them in their blessed state. 
Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. These disciples were eyewitnesses to all that Jesus had done, all that Jesus had taught. They had a front row seat to seeing all of these things, and they would see him eventually crucified and then raised and then ascend to his Father in heaven. They had a front row seat to all of these things as they were unfolding. And compare that, compare what they saw, saw and what they heard to the example and the experience of Old Testament saints. That's Jesus' point. He's like, listen, you're seeing unfold before your very eyes the things that the kings and prophets pointed forward to. Things that they longed to see, but by faith they looked forward to. You are now seeing. Jesus is telling his disciples, get, I mean, just think about this. He is telling these disciples that they understand things, that they are beholding things and understanding things and will understand things more fully than Moses or David or even Isaiah or Jeremiah. These Old Testament saints saw from afar what was to come. They looked through the eyes of faith to this great day when a promised Messiah would come. They longed for it. And yet none of them would live to see that day. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They died in faith, having seen from afar. And these disciples are blessed because they beheld the very truths that the Old Testament saints saw from afar. It was these disciples who would be the first, who would see firsthand these promises of God unfolding. Think about it. These humble, normal, most of them unnamed disciples are seeing what God had promised through the prophets so long ago. The blessing and the privilege they would enjoy was great. And that too, friends, was an act of divine grace, for nothing in them made them better candidates to see the kingdom of God draw near regarding the Messiah's arrival than anyone else. Think about that. Even people in that day, the vast majority of people, contemporaries of the disciples, of people who lived in that day, they saw Jesus. Many, many crowds followed him. A lot of people saw him. A lot of people saw miracles. A lot of people heard the teachings, and yet never believed in him. Jesus doesn't refer to them as being blessed in the same way as he does his disciples here. They had a unique privilege. They had a unique blessing. They saw with their eyes and heard with their ears. And again, all of this was to encourage these early disciples to continue on in their calling and task, even in their successes. Verses 17 and 18, we can go back to their successes. Even in those successes, they needed to be reminded that God was the one behind their salvation and the one behind their successes. We know in our day and time, we too are blessed, though in a different way in a fuller way and yet different way. While we did not see Jesus in the flesh, we have been given the blessed position of seeing the fullness of God's redemption unfold through his revelation. 
We don't, as the Old Testament saint, as did the Old Testament saints, look forward to God's promised salvation. We do look back. We do look forward to the completion, to the, the fullness. But we look back to seeing how it was accomplished. And we see what a great blessing and privilege that is because we see the promises that were made in the Old Testament are promises that are kept in the new. And we have having the complete revelation of God. We've been given the full revelation of God. We've been given these things from beginning to end. Promises made and promises kept. That's not a campaign slogan, that's God's slogan. This is God's plan. This is what he's done and we've been given it all and we can see from beginning to end how it started, how it ends. And what God has done to bring about the redemption of the nations. We see from Genesis to Revelation God's relentless plan to secure a people for himself. We see the promised Messiah and we see the arrival of the Messiah. We see the promised sacrifice. We see the crucifixion and then the resurrection. We see how all the law and prophets have their fulfillment in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what a privilege and what a blessing we enjoy today. Listen, there are things that our preschoolers and our children understand about Jesus that Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and others did not. That is a privilege. That is a blessing. And brothers and sisters, I remind us that with great privilege comes great responsibility. The Old Testament saints didn't know what you knew or what you know. They didn't know what you know, and they rejoiced by faith. The disciples saw all of this unfold before their eyes, and they were blessed. But brothers and sisters, we know in full what the Lord has promised and what the Lord has accomplished. And that ought to be driving our joy as well. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit because of the redemptive plan of his Father a plan he had been fully commissioned to carry out, a plan that these disciples would see unfold before their very eyes. Friends, our joy ought to be rooted in the same glorious realities. We too ought to be a people who rejoice in the Spirit because of what the Father has accomplished through the Son. We too ought to rejoice because we've been given eyes to see. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then he turns and he rejoices in the very same thing. Friends, there are many things that will seek to be the object of your joy in this life. But there is no greater reality in the world that will hold and keep and sustain your joy than the glorious sovereign grace of our majestic God. The joy of Jesus ought to be the joy of his people. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us this glimpse into the relationship of the Godhead 
and the joy that is on display, on display there. Father, we're thankful that you show us that by the Spirit, Jesus rejoiced in your eternal plan to bring redemption to a lost and dying world. Your plan to, by grace, open the eyes of the blind and to give salvation to sinners. Father, would you help us to to see that our joy would be sustained by the same. That our joy would be a joy that is fueled by the Holy Spirit. That our joy would be a joy that is rooted in the beautiful grace of God. That, That our joy would be on display even through the noted blessings that we've been given. Father, we live in a very difficult day on many levels, but Lord, there's so many things that will seek to rob us of joy, and there are many things in this life that will seek to wrongly sustain our joy. God, would you give us the eyes to see the joy of Jesus? And would you give us this wonderful privilege of grace to experience it, to rejoice in it, and to proclaim it to those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.